recently I had on the show uh, Lita Hong Fincher, and it was a very interesting chat. Um, I'm always very conflicted about what I do. Uh, my, my parents were both public defense attorneys, and I spent a lot of my childhood around the idea of ideas of power and control and that a lot of life matters where you're born and that a lot of life matters who you know. So talking to some of the people I've interviewed uh, who've gone to the real centers of power, um, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, I find myself really torn um, in that they they seek a justice that's very different than mine. Uh, my sense of justice would be sort of a, a John Rawlsian uh, curtain of ignorance, this idea that uh, all institutions, all sort of uh, liberal institutions, universities, government, that there really needs to be a much more randomized effect. Um, that there can't be these centers of power uh, at all. They're, they're, that in, in a world I want, I, I don't want a Princeton uh, or a Harvard. And um, this extends out to other sort of liberal uh, institutions or causes. Talking to someone like Lita, um, it, it'll probably be clear from our chat, um, in a, in a very respectful way that um, the type of uh, feminism um, that exists is, uh, is a contested space. Uh, what, what does feminism mean? Who's it for? Is it intersectional with class? Is it intersectional with race? Is it uh, disseminating outwards from powerful institutions? Or is it something like the uh, yellow vest movement in France where it happens organically from uh, the the populace and and these are really hard questions that I'm constantly uh, seeking uh, to answer through art activism and uh, exploring Asia um, so I think it's a pretty good interview um, it's certainly really fun and I think productive for a lot of these uh, people from elite backgrounds to come on my show where I, I tell people, you know, right off the bat, I didn't go to a good college. I barely graduated from a, a not particularly good college. Uh, I was lucky to get into college and that I live this very sort of monk-like uh, Thomas Merton austere life out here in Taiwan where I just drink tea and eat peanut butter sandwiches all day because I'm putting everything back into my... Uh, my startup uh, with this crazy dream that art can have this uh, revolutionary potential. And uh, that is not the world that uh, a lot of my guests come from. That's certainly not the world that uh, I think um, Lita is, is in at the moment. And so it creates this really strange um, space. Maybe it's the closest we can come to, uh, or maybe that's the goal when we have these sorts of conversations is to recreate a Rawls sort of veil of ignorance where we both know we want justice um, but we're coming at it from radically different backgrounds and very different perspectives and that that is the dialogue that needs to happen if we don't 
if we want to have a, a sort of democratic or um, open style of government that is all inclusive, that it, it we can't have these uh, forms of media, forms of power, or institutions like universities that are, um, or or larger social movements like a feminism or anti-racism that are uh, run for. Uh, organized and led by elites. So with, with that uh, sort of introduction in mind, um, the feminism that Lita is researching in China is, is very interesting. Um, it does have a lot of the sort of uh, parallels to what we'd have in the States, um, where uh, large components of it are being led by educated uh, middle-class to upper-class women. Um, but they are branching out into trying to make it intersectional with women who are from rural backgrounds, which would be the majority of uh, Chinese women, uh, trying to make it multi-ethnic or multiracial uh, because China's an extremely diverse um, country, and making it beyond the scopes of, of typical liberal uh, activism, which is sort of the mediation of uh, capital institutions, so sexual harassment in the workplace or uh, in university spheres, to larger questions about um, what does it mean to be a woman in China, what is the role of uh, the Chinese woman in, in, a, in a communist uh, country, um, how can men and women evolve together? What is the um, difference where um, your duties as a citizen stop? So uh, these these questions of biopolitics, does the government, if you live under uh, a government, do they have anything where they should be able to have say about your body? Um, and can anything uh, of that nature be socialist or be uh, communist or is that uh, strictly authoritarian? Um, so I'm much more sympathetic, I think, to the China question uh, than Lita. I think that's okay, though, and I think that these sorts of conversations where you got a dummy from Michigan with uh, people who are much more sympathetic to populism as I am uh, and, and rule by the rabble to talk with people like Lita, who I um, think it's fair to say is coming more from a framework of wanting top-down hierarchical elite institutions that produce a leader class that then leads us. These sorts of conversations are really valuable and um, I'm really proud to try to be building something where those conversations can happen as opposed to a lot of other left or liberal critiques that I hear where it's strictly um, one person from Colombia talking to another person from Columbia about how they want to help all the poor unwashed masses or you know one person from Harvard talking to a podcast host from Yale about you know how they need to have uh, certain reforms or certain uh, tactics in the Democratic Party or uh, these conversations about elite media organizations that most of us will never um, touch. Um, so I hope you enjoy the conversation, and uh, I hope it gets you thinking about activism, feminism, and women in China. Um, I know it did for me. Could you describe how you began your career in academia?
What led to your focus or your belief on the importance of researching women's rights, patriarchy, and feminism in relation to China? Well, I mean, I'm a longtime journalist. I actually ended up doing my PhD at Tsinghua University in Beijing mm-hmm. uh, in sociology, and I was the first American to get a PhD from the sociology department there. But that actually wasn't my original plan. Um, I was uh, I was waiting for my journalist my journalist visa to come through from the Chinese Foreign Ministry, um, and I after waiting for nine months and not getting it, um, then uh, my Chinese mom, who is a scholar, recommended that I apply for a PhD there because uh, my family had already moved to Beijing. So that's basically what happened, how I wound up in a PhD program in in Beijing. Um, But I had been the the Beijing correspondent for Voice of America um, from 2000 to 2003, and then I worked for them in Washington and then um, I moved back again in 2009, um, and but uh, my husband had a journalist visa, so I was on a spouse visa. So it's all very, you know, it all has to do with Chinese government restrictions on foreigners. Um, mm-hmm. And so that it was kind of uh, by accident that I wound up in the PhD program. But then once I actually started, I received a a really great scholarship from Tsinghua University. And once I started the program, I very quickly got involved in um, my research on real estate agencies in Beijing and and, um, how uh, gender played a really important role in home buying. And and then uh, I just found it to be fascinating. And so that led me to my PhD thesis, which I then developed my thesis into my first book, which was Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China. How has the day-to-day life of the Chinese woman evolved with and under the party? What's the through line of how feminism and women have been viewed from Mao to our present day? In broad strokes, of course. Right. Well, I mean, as I write in in my book, Feminism played a really important role in China's revolutionary history. So it um, it, it was very important for the communist revolution um, when the Chinese Communist Party was founded in 1921. But but it went back much farther than that. It was really important as well around the turn of the century um, with the fall of the Qing Empire and all of the revolutionaries who were involved. Um, uh, there were some extremely influential, really brilliant women revolutionary feminists like He Yinzhen and Xiu Jin, for example. Um, and uh, and then feminism played a really important role as well in this uh, the movement, the May Fourth movement in 1919. That was um, an uprising that began with university students, but then spread much wider than that. So so then the May 4th movement of 1919 led to the growth of uh, the communist 
movement inside China as well. So um, feminism uh, has long been incredibly important in Chinese history, and it was used by the early communists in the 1920s to attract women to this young communist party. Um, so women were really excited by the idea of just a, a kind of subculture uh, provided by this communist party where women could be emancipated from all of these feudal traditions um, that have were preached for centuries through Confucianism in particular. So, and, and then later the, the call of gender equality was used by the Communist Party as well to mobilize masses of women in the working class and, and uh, in the countryside. Um, but then at the end of the 1920s in particular, the men in China's Communist Party really, uh, after embracing feminism and these women who were very feminist in the beginning, um, they ended up just marginalizing the women and deciding that um, that as as the Soviets did, um, that class had to take precedence over gender and that feminine was quote unquote bourgeois. And so so then the feminists in the party were kind of pushed to the side. But that said, when the communists won the revolution in 1949 and founded the People's Republic of China, gender equality was still uh, written into the new constitution. And of course, Mao Zedong, the founder of the People's Republic, very famously said that women hold up half the sky. And so, um, so there were so many policies in the early communist era that that mobilized women in the workforce, assigned them jobs en masse in cities and in the countryside. And the propaganda back in those early communist days really upheld gender equality. Um, and, and, and today, when we see the Communist Party really stigmatizing feminism, making it... Uh, an objectionable term and actually cracking down on feminist activists. There's a, there's actually a long historical tradition of the party doing that. Why is she choosing this strategy? And is there a commonality between Xi's strategy of patriarchal ethno nationalism and other auto or kleptocratic leaders such as uh, Bolsonaro, Putin, Duterte, or uh, Modi? I don't think that all of these autocrats necessarily get together and plot, you know, coordinate the subordination of women. But um, just let me just start with China, because uh, certainly I, I argue that this is just um, that patriarchy, patriarchal authoritarianism has been key to the longevity of the Communist Party in China. And so that's particularly true since the onset of market reforms um, 
in the 1980s in the, and, the, and it accelerated particularly in the 2000s and it's intensifying even more under Chinese President Xi Jinping where, um, uh, where the Communist Party today as of the last few years under President Xi has been pushing these incredibly traditional gender norms even more aggressively than they ever did before. Um, sending the message that women have to return to the home to become dutiful wives and mothers, um, to have more babies that coincides with this new two-child policy that was um, enacted in 2016, a, 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 more, a little more than two years ago. Um, and so uh, it coincides with the slowing of the Chinese economy. Um, if you're, you're just looking at the Chinese government, why it's pushing the, these patriarchal norms very aggressively now, um, it's because I, I believe it's because the male dominated Communist Party um, is very worried about holding on to power about its political legitimacy in the face of a lot of challenges, including uh, slowing economic growth and this demographic crisis of falling birth rates and the aging population. So, uh, but, it, but, but the thing is that this is happening, this um, resurgence of um, aggressive patriarchal norms in China um, it's happening at the same time that there is a global rise of authoritarianism. And if you look at all of the autocrats globally, um, whether it's Vladimir Putin in Russia or even the newly uh, increasingly um, authoritarian democratically elected, elected leaders like Orban in Hungary, or uh, Erdogan in Turkey, um, or Duterte in the Philippines. Um, and then most recently, you have Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil. All of these autocrats share the common feature of pushing very sexist, misogynistic policies. Um, and of course, every country is different. So the dynamics, you know, in China are very different from uh, Russia. But 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 it's really striking. Every single one of these autocrats, um, uh, if you if you listen to what they say and the policies that they're pushing uh, about women and gender, they're strikingly similar. They want um, to push very traditional gender norms. They want you know women to have more babies. They're concerned about their own demographic. Uh, problems. They're concerned about um, often about falling birth rates. Um, and then they see the traditional submissive role of women as being part of their hold on power in general. So I think that that's a really important uh, trend or phenomenon to look at as we try to come up with ways to fight back this growing tide of authoritarianism. Turning to the feminists themselves, how did you get to know them as a group, and why did you decide to focus on these five women for your most recent book? 
it was uh, very natural for me to to want to interview all of the feminist five. So um, these are five young women. They each have really compelling stories. Um, and so I focus on their narrative at the core of my book. Um, and just to give you a little background, these are five young women who were uh, arrested and then thrown into jail for 37 days in, in 2015 uh, because they were planning to celebrate International Women's Day by handing out anti-sexual harassment stickers on subways and buses. Um, there were actually many more than five women who were taking part in this activity or were planning to take part, uh, but then the Chinese police carried out a sweeping round of arrests in several different cities um, and then ended up focusing on these five young women. And because the global outcry to the jailing of these women was so intense um, and included uh, at the time Hillary Clinton, who was considered to be the front runner for the U.S. presidency, it, it was a really enormous uh, global outcry. There was a lot of diplomatic pressure um, and it coincided with President Xi Jinping's co-hosting a world conference on women at the United Nations in New York. So it was blatantly hypocritical to be jailing women while hosting this world conference on women in New York. Um, so the Chinese government, I believe, really came under a lot of pressure, and that's why they released these women. Um, but... Uh, I knew one of the women already, Li Maizi, because I had already met her. I wrote about her briefly in my first book. I wanted to go and talk to all of the women about their experiences. And then after interviewing them, I then realized that this was actually a much bigger, more important feminist network than I had known. And so I just increased the uh, the, the women that I were, uh, the number of women I was interviewing, and um, I included a lot of other feminist activists who aren't as well known. Um, and then I just described the rise of this extremely potent, vibrant, and resilient movement that is continuing today. And so this movement, I believe, um, could potentially be the most transformative social movement in China since 1989. And one of the reasons why it's so potent is because um, it's not just because the women at its core are very good political organizers. It's also because their fundamental message of equality for women, um, you know, that fundamental message that women deserve to be able to live, you know, without being sexually harassed, um, without being discriminated on a daily basis, about without being discriminated against, um, that that fundamental message resonates with literally tens of millions of particularly young urban women in China. And and it and you can see with the Me Too movement in China that uh, that 
there's just a critical mass now of young women in China, particularly urban educated women who are increasingly emboldened and standing up and demanding equal rights. How successful have these female activists been in driving the zeitgeist for contemporary women and pushing back against the party's narrative about women's roles? And is Chinese feminism becoming or focused on becoming more working class, rural, and non-Han in their leadership and framing? This cross-class dynamic is incredibly important. Um, So... First of all, you know, this movement is not being led by the Feminist Five. I have to clarify that. You know, I I focus on the narrative of the, the, the Feminist Five, um, but they're, the, they're not, you know, uh, actual leaders of a movement. The, the way the women's movement has evolved in China is that it's become so widespread and so broad. Leaderless is... Mm-hmm. Uh, a word that a lot of activists um, use when describing it as a movement. So, so you could talk to, for example, you know, any some ordinary young woman in in a, a average town, not even Beijing or Shanghai, um, and talk to her about why she wanted to post her personal story of sexual abuse on Weibo or WeChat. Weibo being China's equivalent of Twitter. Um, And so most of the ordinary young women who are taking part in Me Too in some way or another, most of them wouldn't necessarily call themselves feminist outright. And they, they wouldn't say that they are part of a political movement. But this is actually part of the strength and power of this organic movement because that because there are so many different layers to it there are core political activists um, who are organizing actively deliberately who are constantly being persecuted by security Mm -hmm. agents in china and then and then it's crossed over into uh you know a a lot of urban educated women, especially university students and recent university graduates, but it is also crossed over into the working class. So there are feminist activists who have become extremely involved in the labor rights movement. Um, Quite a few of those activists were recently detained uh, a couple of months ago in Southern China for trying to unionize workers. And so there's this cross-class element where, you know, uh, there are working class women themselves have also become much more aware of the need to stand up for their rights as women, not just Mm -hmm. as workers, Um, you know, demanding a workplace uh, that is free from sexual harassment or or free from pregnancy discrimination, for example, which is a really common problem for factory mm-hmm. women. Um, so, that, so there is a strong uh, cross-class element to the feminist movement, which overlaps with the labor rights movement. It overlaps with the LGBTQ rights movement. Um, the part that so far is not n- that noticeable is rural 
you know, women who are still living in the countryside in small villages. Um, that's not something, um, uh, but, but, but it's, I think it's very difficult to just draw these um, artificial boundaries because in China, the, the population is moving en masse away from the countryside into the cities. China has become a predominantly urban country as opposed to being predominantly rural. And so, so many of the people working in factories today actually do come from the countryside. They're migrant workers and they don't have um, a household registration or huko in the major city where they're working at a particular factory. So it's, you know, I, I think that um, even though uh, the feminist movement has originated around university centers, university students and recent graduates. Um, it's increasingly uh, affecting working class women. They're also working class men who even join in solidarity, um, expressing support for feminist activists when they're detained. So so and this is this is what makes the entire movement or overlapping of movements so dynamic and powerful and very difficult for the Chinese authorities to control at this point. In terms of tactics, what role does art, memes, or performance art play with these feminists? And in China, is political theater more important, similar to a group like, let's say, Pussy Riot or uh, Extinction Rebellion, due to the inability to organize mass protests? Activists are constantly changing their strategies. And so uh, there are young feminist activists in 2012 in particular were very, um, very involved with these acts of so-called performance art where they were appearing on the street in some kind of um, action designed to attract the attention of bystanders. So, as you mentioned, there was this Bloody Brides protest that just involved these three young women wearing white wedding dresses splashed with fake red blood to protest the epidemic of domestic violence in China. So those kinds of actions actually uh, received some favorable coverage even in the state media, even from Xinhua News at the time. And so at back then in 2012, all the way up until early 2015, the feminist activists deliberately chose um, issues that they thought were not too controversial because they didn't want mm. to be labeled, you know, as sub subversive. But then all of that was... Um, all of that was quite violently disrupted when the authorities jailed the Feminist Five in March of 2015. And so uh, that really galvanized the feminist community in China. And even though it was a huge blow to them at the time, after a while, um, it, the fact that these women were jailed actually ended up just shining a spotlight on the whole, fem the very tiny feminist movement at that time. And I don't even know if I would have called it a movement before these women were jailed. But then afterwards, 
um, I, I think that, uh, that the movement really became a much more potent social and political movement um, because so many young women who, who had previously not realized that you know, feminism was important in any way began to identify themselves as feminist. Um, and so it, there was the development of a political form of consciousness around feminist issues and issues of women's rights that where, where there wasn't really, um, that much consciousness before the consciousness was already beginning to grow among Mm -hmm. ordinary young women, but, um, but particularly following the jailing of the feminist vibe that, that kind of women's rights consciousness um, and willingness of young women to stand up for their rights. Um, that, that, that is just, that grew exponentially after 2015. So they, following the jailing of the feminist vibe in 2015, um, it was no longer possible to stage these kinds of provocative street actions because the police were then persecuting individual feminist activists. And I describe a lot of these individual stories of persecution in my book. Um, And that persecution continues today. And so so, uh, a lot of the activism then went online much more than it uh, had been before. So um, there was this, uh, the most prominent feminist website or social media account which was called feminist voices was banned this year on the night of international women's day in march um the authorities just very recently closed down an important center an anti-sexual violence center in guangzhou in southern china um And so these kinds of retaliatory actions by the government are going to continue. Um, But but the thing is that because so many young women are really interested in women's rights now, even if they don't call themselves feminists, um, the it's it's very it's very hard for the government to just entirely wipe out um, a Me Too movement or a feminist movement at this point because there are so many different permutations. It affects so many different people. It, it, you know, there are young men as well as young women involved. It's, it's sprouting up all over the country. So the government can't just... Um, close down every single website or every single center. I mean, it, it's easier to close down a formal center, a non-governmental organization mm-hmm. that works on women's rights. And, and I'm sure the government will continue really strongly cracking down on these kinds of formal organizations. But the informal organization is much, much harder to control the organic uprising of individual young women or men, you know, calling for more protection uh, from sexual violence or protection for for women's rights in general. You mentioned queerness as being a threat to the party. Why is it a fear? 
or threatening to the party, and why has the public shown such an interest in queerness? I don't actually. I don't think that queerness per se is a huge threat. Feminism is definitely viewed. The Communist Party. Um, this is one of the arguments that I make in my book: is that um, that the party sees as really being fundamental to its political legitimacy. The the idea of the very patriarchal heteronormative family based on marriage between a man and a woman resulting in now, according to official policy, resulting in two, two babies. So um, if you uh, de- deviate from that norm, uh, deviate, quote unquote, from the point of view of the party, you're seen as a potential problem. So same-sex marriage is banned. Um, the party um, has has been very aggressively pushing marriage, heterosexual marriage, because same-sex marriage is banned. It's been pushing it for a long time. Um, I mean, I started writing about this uh, phenomenon since um, 2007, actually. The, the party has been very aggressively pushing single, educated Han Chinese women in particular to get married and have babies um, early in their 20s, ideally, according to the Communist Party. So the party has been uh, intensifying its efforts as of last year. The Communist Youth League got involved in organizing mass matchmaking festivals that were largely targeting Han Chinese educated women and men. Um, and this is in response to falling birth rates, falling marriage rates. Um, but it's mm-hmm. also, um, well, I'm getting away from your question about queerness, but, but it's very complicated. If you look at the most committed feminist activists in China, so many of them actually are queer themselves. And part of it they 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 describe to me as being um these young women first realized that they were um, they did not conform to this very strict heteronormative standard that is aggressively pushed by the Communist Party. And then once the women themselves accepted and embraced their own sexuality, um, you know, maybe as queer, um, then it was another ideological step for them to embrace feminism and so uh, so they said that it's more difficult in general for heterosexual women to make that ideological leap to openly embracing the idea of feminism Um, but that that's what these young women who were queer feminist activists tell me of course there are a lot of straight women involved in the women's rights well, but but it's it is quite striking how many queer women um, and are involved and um, queer men as well. I mean, I, I write there there are so many examples in popular culture in China today. Um, I mean, I I wrote about a couple of them. For example, there are some uh, pop bands that have emerged with these young women who 
um, who actually present themselves as gender fluid or, or explicitly male even. Um, and so one of these bands um, is, uh, it, but this is just one among so many, but one of them is um, a band called A Crush, where there are these, there are five, five young women who have now adopted you know, male nicknames and they present themselves as being kind of like a boy band and that's their entire style um if you look at some of the videos singing the love songs um they often feature the you know woman in the band singing a love song to you know another very femme appearing woman um so that's just one little example of how um that band was was actually uh, was actually promoted by a large Chinese company, and so there are examples of corporations in China that are are now recognizing that these cloyingly feminine ideals and stereotypes that are being aggressively pushed through state propaganda are actually not what a lot of young women really want that <laughs> there's um, huge demand for, all, you know, non-normative forms of sexuality in popular culture or celebrity culture. Um, so, uh, but, but that's all happening. That's all very organic. It's, but it's not on the margins. I think it's quite mainstream now. Um, so, but, but, uh, but there are so many examples of that. But then if you talk to any of these stars, um, they're not going to, I mean, they're operating in, in this, in right. a police state. And so they're not going to say anything publicly that is politically controversial in any way. Um, so, so it's very much a kind of apolitical um, feminist image that they're projecting because, but that's what make, that's what's beginning to make an awful lot of money in China. Many of these activists and young people, um, uh, queer activists and feminist activists have to do two acts of bravery. They have to stand up to a patriarchal authoritarian government and they also have to, um, perhaps embrace their identity with people who don't know about it. So talking to parents and relatives or friends about being queer or being gay or being a feminist. Can you tell me a bit about how this generational divide plays out and how um, the older generation is learning to adapt, uh, learn from, or interact with uh, this younger, more activist generation well i mean it, it obviously varies with the individual but i would say by and large generational conflict is extremely difficult um in china i think it's generally hard for uh, and it's certainly not unique to china it's it can be very hard if your parents are not supportive for a kid to come out you know as queer to their parents um, and that's particularly true in a country like China, where the state is so aggressively pushing um, traditional heteronormative gender norms. 
And and the same goes for, you know, telling your parents that you're feminist or you're a feminist activist. So um, with the activists, and these are the most committed activists that I interviewed, um, they often had major conflicts with their parents and their parents often would, um, I mean, some of the activists were actually uh, abused by their by their fathers or or they grew up witnessing really severe domestic violence in their mm. home which the father would often beat their mother um this is these unfortunately these kinds of stories are really common um uh but the but the communist party itself takes advantage of these kinds of generational conflicts so when um when these the you know, the core activists, feminist activists, are detained or interrogated. One common strategy used by the security agents is to blame the women for being terrible daughters, to try to make them feel guilty for making their parents suffer for the young women's activism. Um, sometimes security agents will actually punish the parents by keeping them under house arrest. That has certainly happened. Um, mm. That kind of tactic is often used in China, where the young person who's the activist is so committed to her activism that the security agents think it's more effective to go and harass her parents instead, or her grandparents even, um, or other uh, older relatives to try to keep their trouble, so to speak, troublemaker um, in line. And this is also filial piety is still a very strong influence in Chinese society. And, and even the most radical of the activists that I interviewed do often feel guilty um, you know, making their parents suffer for their activism. So that can be a very effective strategy of controlling young activists. Um, but then also you see it in the propaganda coming from the Communist Party, that this propaganda that seems really ridiculous, some of the, and I write about a lot of the propaganda, for example, um, the People's Daily or Xinhua News has run articles and pictures trying to pressure young women in college they haven't even graduated from college trying to push them into having babies while they're still in college so on the face of it when you look at these propaganda state media reports they look so absurd there's no way you know that a young woman in college would fall for it but the propaganda can actually be quite effective with the older generation. So then mm -hmm. that, young, that young woman is then pressured by her parents. Um, so, and this happens to virtually all young urban women in China, that they often come under enormous pressure from their own parents to get married and then to have a baby and now two babies. Um, but of course it varies by the individual. There are much more progressive parents who do support their daughters and their activism. For Chinese feminists, 
is it a question of reform or revolution? Do they, through their actions and their feminist activism, seek to implement feminist reforms? Or are they trying to bring about or strive for a larger revolution and eventual defeat of the Communist Party of China? No. No, I mean, this is another um, element of the women's rights movement, broadly speaking, that makes it powerful and broad-based and popular in China, is that this is, it's not, um, it's not something that advocates the overthrow of the Communist Party. The movement is about equality for women. It's, um, a fight against patriarchy. It's not a direct attack on the Communist Party per se. So, um, it, so the messages resonate with everyday, ordinary women. It deals with the everyday concerns of women in China. Um, so that's why you know, sexual harassment is such a huge theme because the vast majority of young women in China have, um, or women in China in general, have experienced some form or another of sexual harassment or sexual violence. And they're, uh, so they have, this is, these are personal, deeply personal problems that, that so many women across the country can identify with. Um, Women across the country um, want to be able to work. They want, you know, they don't want to be discriminated against when they're applying for a job. But but gender discrimination in hiring is so routine in China and and it appears, it could be getting even worse than it used to be. And so... So the movement itself is so resilient and powerful in part because it deals with the everyday concerns of women. It's not something that's really abstract, um, not something that says we want the overthrow of the Communist Party. That's not what they're about. Um, But at the same time, Feminism itself is about embracing all kinds of people like and allowing women to have control over their own bodies and their own lives. And that message is actually profoundly seen as profoundly uh, potentially destabilizing to the Communist Party because the Communist Party needs and wants to control everybody and it needs in particular to control women because women are the ones who have babies. So um, this is uh, another reason why I argue that patriarchal authoritarianism and the subjugation of women is absolutely key to authoritarian control in China. And these dynamics are very similar in autocracies around the world. It's about the autocracies fundamentally want to control women, control women's bodies and subjugate women. And so 
Um, <laughs> so, no, the activists do not. Uh, but I mean, I haven't personally encountered anybody who's a self-described feminist activist who um, is trying to promote Communist Party propaganda. Um, but I also haven't met any feminist activist who comes out publicly and says we need to overthrow the Communist Party. It is fascinating to see the reaction and counter-reaction where the party will implement reforms and then react to the success or unintended consequences of those reforms. It is a backlash against the, the success of many policies in, in the past because there's, there is a record number of women in China who are educated now, who are college educated. And now, and now that, that success in educating women is now seen as a new threat by the Communist Party. So the struggle is going to continue. What pieces of advice or encouragement would you have for anyone interested in helping Chinese feminists or activism more broadly? And for those interested in your work, um, beyond your books, Betraying Big Brother and Leftover Women, where can people find out more about you? Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, um, I'm very uh, active on Twitter, and so my Twitter handle is at Leita Hong, L-E-T-A-H-O-N-G. People can always find me there. That's um, and uh, but I, I would say that you know China is becoming increasingly repressive, and it can be um, backlash against feminism is it's not just against feminism. There is an increasing assault on civil society. Um, you know, recently the Chinese government detained two Canadian citizens. So it's coming. I, I would I would never recommend that anybody just visiting China, you know, go and um, try to do anything that might get them or anybody else into trouble. Outside, there, there are so many ways you can engage on social media. You, I mean, I, I talk about some of the organizations in, in my book, Betraying Big Brother. Um, there are are global diaspora organized organizations for Chinese feminists that have been set up outside China um, to just promote the exchange of information and ideas. Um, and so, so people can, can read about that. Lita Hong Fincher, thank you very much for coming on and speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me.